The talk tonight is on the four heavenly messengers. And for those of you who don't know the story in full, I'd like to tell a bit of it. It is said that when the historical Buddha was a young prince, his father, a king, decided that his son must never see anything that would disturb his mind. So he arranged for three palaces to be built for the prince, one for the rains, <coughs> one for the winter, and one for the summer. And the prince never left the palaces and lived a life, again, it is said, of great comfort and pleasure. Someone told him that outside the palace there were beautiful gardens and fountains and flowers and birds that he had never seen before. So he decided to visit these gardens. And the king proclaimed that the whole city should be cleaned and decorated and that nothing that could disturb the prince's mind should appear. So anything that would remind the prince of old age or disease, sickness, and death were to be removed from the streets. So the prince left the, guard, the, the palace that he was in, and the first thing that he saw was an old man. A deva conjured up an old man for the prince to see. And he was bald, and his teeth were gone, and his body was bent over, and he gasped with pain. And the prince was horrified, because he'd never seen anyone old before. And he asked the driver, What is this? How does it come that this man looks like this? And the driver replied that this man is what is called old. And then the prince proceeded to ask the driver many questions and eventually asked, well, will this happen to me, too? And the driver said, yes. And the prince was so deeply disturbed that he just decided he couldn't go on to the gardens and went back to the palace. This kind of situation happened four times. Each time the prince decided to go out to some beautiful garden that he had, or forest that he had heard of, his father cleaned up the route that he was to take of anyone who was old, diseased, or dead, suffering of any kind. And each time a deva conjured up someone old, someone sick, someone dead. And the prince was deeply troubled each time. And it is said that he thought, when an untaught, ordinary person, one who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, sees another who is aged, one is shocked and humiliated. For one forgets that he or she is no exception. But I, too, am subject to aging. I'm not safe from aging, and so it cannot befit me to be shocked and humiliated on seeing another who is aged. 
When I considered this, the vanity of youth left me. When the prince considered not being safe from sickness and death in the same way, the vanity of health and the vanity of life also left him. The prince went out for a fourth time and a deva conjured up a wanderer to appear, a samana, one who wore a yellow robe. And he asked the driver who this was who walked with a mind more peaceful than peace itself. And the driver answered that this was a renunciate, one who has become peaceful. And this was the last and fourth heavenly messenger that the deva conjured up. That's why they're called heavenly messengers. The prince soon decided to become a renunciate. And his father grieved and desperately tried to keep him from leaving home. And the prince responded to him that he knew of his father's great love for him, but that he wouldn't change his mind. He said, A wise person regards their friends and relatives just as fellow travelers, each one going along the same road, but soon to be separated as each goes to their own place. And if you speak to me about a fit time and an unfit time for becoming a renunciate, my answer is that death knows nothing of one time or another, but is busy gathering victims at all times. So the prince left his incredibly comfortable and luxurious lifestyle upon seeing these four heavenly messengers, someone old, someone sick, someone dead, and a renunciate. These messengers helped wake the prince up from his strong involvement in the sensual world. He saw the world as an all-consuming fire, which I see to mean that there's such an urgency for us all to wake up and seek understanding and freedom. All of us in our life have met one or all of these four heavenly messengers. And it's important as we go through our life to keep asking ourselves how they can keep inspiring us to keep going in this practice, in this journey of opening and waking up. The first heavenly messenger was old age. Old age can be a very difficult time Because when our body breaks down in earlier years, there's always this comfort that we can say to ourselves that we're going to get better. But with old age, there's no sense of getting better because there's no cure for old age. I remember a teacher from Sri Lanka named Sivali who came to IMS from just before he died. He had the most 
amazing eyes. I called him mango eyes to myself. They were so sweet. And one time, just before he left here and before he died, he looked at me with this huge smile and said, you know, the body's hopeless. He said, you mustn't be afraid of the pain. The body's hopeless. Just totally joyous. Old age can be a time to let go of one's usual busyness and distractions and see the preciousness of each moment that we have left. Many body parts don't, u- don't work the way they used to. Eyesight might become dim. Hearing might become less acute. Delights of the sense doors might not be as precious anymore. And so the usual props that brought pleasure or fulfillment or meaning usually don't work anymore. And if it's possible, one can actually look inside for happiness and peace. It can be a great time of one's life for slowing down and awakening. And it's a very similar process as how it is when we're on retreat, in that our usual props for boosting up or reinforcing the eye aren't here for us. All the numerous little things that we do to support our idea of I, to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, aren't here for us. Instead of filling our moments with doing, we're learning about just being. Just being as alert as possible, softly, without ambition. (coughs) Just being with each moment, just as it is, even when it seems unbearable or unworkable. There's so much emphasis on the pleasure of youth in this culture that when the balding or the graying or the wrinkles start to occur, it can be incredibly distressing. If our idea of ourselves and our happiness comes from how our body looks, then our sense of well-being is given an incredible test in old age. This is a quote from a woman named Anne Truitt from a journal. I am so thankful to have lived into the beginning of old age, for I am coming to understand its usefulness. It seems to me that I am aging into impersonality, as if I were slowly and in the most ordinary way becoming valuable. My personal experience, so objectified by its years, that it's accessible to others without much engagement of my ego. I have noticed this kind of impersonal distance in people older than I, 
and wondered what it would feel like. And now I know, and I like it. Aging into impersonality. There's such a tragic lack of tradition of learning from the elders in our society, the elders of our tribe, who have learned that from life and that from old age, it's like completing a circle. There's a beauty of fulfillment. This is from a Zuni Nightway song. In old age, wandering on a trail of beauty, lively may I walk. In old age, wandering on a trail of beauty, living again may I walk. It is finished. It is finished in beauty. It's possible to develop a contentment and a deep sense of hidden trust that isn't dependent on anything, that is unshakable, even in the late evening of life, when everything that we've held on to becomes a lie. It can be a great teacher. My father has been seriously ill the past three months. It's not possible for the doctors to operate anymore. And I just visited him recently, and I'm not sure if I'll ever see him again. The fragility of his condition is so awesome to me. It's like the uncertainty of life is so dramatically real. When I saw him, and the awareness that comes from that is so powerful. It's like when I actually got to the door and went in to see him, I really said hello probably the best hello I'd said to him my whole life. And then when I left to go, I really said goodbye. And it's so poignant and so rich and so full, so meaningful and so painful. It brings such awareness of the preciousness of life and the utter uncertainty that we all live in. And the level of profundity, it can't be spoken. But if we understand this incredible, utter uncertainty, If we understand this deeply from moment to moment, it really helps us to appreciate the preciousness of our life, 
the preciousness of each other, the preciousness of the planet. It's incredibly inspiring. The first heavenly messenger is old age, in which there's no cure. The second heavenly messenger is disease or sickness. My mother became what is called terminally ill when I was a young child. And she was sick for many years before she died. And probably one of the most powerful experiences that we can have in our lifetime besides our own death is watching our parents dying. There's something that becomes very final about our aloneness then. And as children, we often don't grasp how how impermanent all that lives is. And yet it's our efforts as we grow older to face this impermanence, to face these heavenly messengers, that actually enables us to live, to live more fully and freely. There's a part of a poem that touches me a lot in regard to the heart of our mortality, this mortality that we all share as we live on this planet. It's a poem written by a father to his infant daughter. It seems to capture to me this feeling of our mortality. It's called Little Little Sleep's Head Sprouting Hair in the Moonlight. It has more relevance for me tonight. (coughs) You scream, waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up, and hold you up in the moonlight. You cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I think you think I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars. Even as my broken arms heal themselves around you, I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I have stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die. Little Maud, I would blow the flame out of your silver cup. I would brush your sprouting hair of the dying light. I would scrape the rust off your ivory bones. I would help death escape through the little ribs in your body. 
I would alchemize the ashes of your cradle back into wood. I would let nothing of you go, ever. And yet perhaps this is the reason you cry. This is the nightmare you wake screaming from. Being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. Yes, you cling because I, like you, only sooner than you, will go down the path of vanished alphabets, the roadlessness to the other side of the darkness. Mortality, sickness, It was while watching my mother become more and more unable to do the things that I thought mothers should be doing that first inspired me to search for the meaning of life. And this is because her sickness and eventual death was so unbearably painful to me. So initially I began to seek times alone I wasn't like the other kids, in the quietness of nature. And then I eventually found this path of meditation. And it was so painful to watch her losing control and to see the amount of pain she was in, that as a child it was unbearable. And I had to find some context for it. Ramdas has said that for something in you dies when you bear the unbearable, and it is only in that dark night of the soul that you are prepared to see as God sees and to love as God loves. I think that's a very nice thing to say. For something in you dies when you bear the unbearable, And it is only in that dark night of the soul that you are prepared to see as God sees and to love as God loves. As my mother all too quickly decayed and was dying, I found it very difficult for her, for myself, to accept that she would be in that much pain. And it seemed very unfair and I felt incredibly helpless. I just couldn't take her pain away. And I was having so much aversion to her pain, but I didn't understand that at the time. And in recent years I've seen that it is possible to have compassion, to be open to that kind of pain, rather than to have aversion to it that we can actually open to each moment of loss, fear, sorrow, body breakdown, whatever. And that we can actually use these moments as opportunities to awaken. And when we can do this, when we can actually transform unbearable situations 
into becoming workable. They become our greatest teachers. Whenever our bodies break down or intense physical sensations occur, there's usually a lot of resistance, feelings that it's unfair, that if only we didn't have these strong sensations, then we could really do our practice. But we really never know when our bodies are going to break down. I have a friend who found out he had AIDS several years ago after leaving a three-month course. And he said to me something that I found very interesting. He said he had two fears. He said that his biggest fears are he's afraid of dying quickly and he's afraid of dying slowly. Interesting. That it would come down to that, being afraid of dying quickly and afraid of dying slowly. This amazingly quick ability for situations to change, to discover one has AIDS. That's another example I have of this. There's so many. Um, There's another person who left a three-month course about three years ago and found a lump on her breast and then proceeded to find out it was in her lymph nodes, uh, this cancer and eventually decided to have chemotherapy and radiation treatments. And I visited her a few months after the chemo, and her hair had fallen out. All of her hair had just fallen out. And I kept reassuring her that it was winter and that she was merely shedding. I wasn't sure. But she survived it. Um, But in the middle of the chemotherapy, she wrote me this letter. It's just a part of the letter. And it's, again, it's around this fear we have of dying. A few months ago, I experienced four or so hours of the most immense terror I could imagine. The subject was death. A friend helped me soften to the fear. I watched myself project into the future, moment by moment, finding it almost intolerable to be with the sensations of fear. Up till then, I'd felt as though I'd been careening through the whole cancer experience like a drunkard, just trying to hold on to the rails when I could find them. Since then, there's been still a lot of terror, but a clearer sense of being much more grounded in the moment. Also, I realized that all my horror stories about death, like floating around alone in the dark cosmos, were simply a projection of how I view life, of my childhood fears, 
that it was incredibly arrogant and unimaginative to think I knew how death would be. So I feel friendlier towards it. I guess the idea is not to get too friendly. I think it's her humor that saves her. Her P.S. was, this was, um, her hair started to grow back. And she said, I got a haircut today, just a little trim around the ears. My mother was thrilled to hear about the haircut. Somehow she has fixated on the loss of hair as the primal terror. (laughs) And then she says in parentheses, little does she know. (laughs) The second heavenly messenger, I think, is incredibly important for us because one way that it can help us is if we have any sense of physical well-being. We can feel fortunate for that, and yet we forget. We so easily forget and forget to use our time wisely. In terms of how it could inspire us while we're here on retreat, I just wanted to mention my own experience with this, that I think almost every time I've been on a retreat, my body has broken down in some major capacity. And so the conditions have rarely been ripe for me to be able to sit through a whole retreat. The most innocuous type of breaking down is that I'm usually highly allergic to anywhere that I tend to be having a room. So like here at IMS, I'm allergic to all the rooms except um, one room in the annex, which most of the old students know (laughs) which room I sit in. Or, you know, sometimes it's a root canal that I have to leave for cysts on my tailbone so I can't sit. Some usual minor details. And uh, whenever I have an uninterrupted chunk of time, I am so happy. I just get so joyous. It feels like such a gift to have some space to practice without having to leave. And the last retreat I did was the first time that my body didn't break down in in one way or the other and I didn't have to leave. But one of my teeth started, I could tell it started to go. Like it just was doing this little number, I could feel the sensations, and it held out to the end of the course. But I didn't know if it would. And it's, again, it's just like it just, I consider these blessings because they're just enough to remind me, hey, this could be my last moment practicing or my last day on the retreat. And I think that people who tend to be a little more healthier are actually more unfortunate. I see this when I'm teaching. It's like that you have no idea (laughs) how fragile it is. And then there's not that inspiration or motivation. I can assure you it is. (laughs) It's incredibly fragile. Just the conditions to be here. We got a 
letter from Burma again, a friend who's a monk, and the whole, it's just the conditions there, all the Westerners have had to leave, and not even Burmese yogis are allowed in the monastery there. The conditions for practice are so rare, so incredibly rare. And to get a chunk of time, even a day, never mind a week or three months, you're so lucky. And it's easy to forget. It's human. It's natural. But it's good to be reminded. It's good to be reminded that it really is maybe your last breath and the next one may be your last breath, because it's true. Which brings us to the third heavenly messenger that the prince saw, which was a dead person. There's a saying from a black African tribe that death knows no kings. It is its own king. And I remember the first time I saw a corpse, it was my mother's, at her wake. It was so cold. It was so eerily cold and unmoving. A body that once flowed with warmth and vitality. I think that's what did me (laughs) me in, was the coldness of the body. It really shook me very deeply. Beings in this world cannot avoid dying. Living brings us to death. There's no other road. There's no detours. There's no (laughs) U-turns. It's the only road. And we just never know when our bodies are going to die. And next to our death at any moment, what thought can be so important? Can we really live with this understanding that we really never know what's going to happen? This poet that I like a lot called Galway Canal says that Knowledge beforehand of the end is surely among existence's most spectacular feats. Knowledge beforehand of the end is surely among existence's most spectacular feats. It's spectacular because this awareness helps cut through our complacency. (laughs) Our foolishness, it really helps clean up our act. It's amazing how none of us really want to believe that it's going to happen to us. You know, we're faced with it constantly, and it just, it's, it's going to happen to everyone but me. It's amazing. And the potential of death that we all face, if we face it, enough times, over and over and over again. It can help us find the courage we need to face loss 
we can become friends with death. It actually is our most intimate friend. And this doesn't mean that we deny life. I'm not trying to send you all into a major depression here. (laughs) On the contrary, being able to really face death allows for more lightness, incredible lightness of being, of liveness. This is because we actually assent to being here fully each moment. The more awake we are, the more actually that we're affirming being here. We're affirming life. There are two ways that we can look at death from the perspective of the physical body actually dying and from the perspective of the birth and death of each moment of consciousness that each moment is taking birth and passing moment by moment. The first perspective is that of the physical body dying. And one way that helps me look at this is when I look at a tree in the middle of the summer. And even if you look at the most healthy tree one fully alive and growing, even on one tree you'll find an amazing (laughs) process of life and death. There's many dead branches and live branches. If you look at even one leaf, there's this tremendous, you know, edges where where it's brown and fungus and animal burrows. It's extraordinary. Basically what's happening is this constantly changing process of birth and death, even on one leaf, even in one tree. But then when we ask people to take a look at their own body as a constantly changing process, somehow we have resistance to that. And so the question to ask is, well, what, what is the body anyway? When you cut your hair, and you see it on the floor. Do you say that that's me? When you cut your fingernails, is that me that you put wherever you put it, depending on your conditioning? (laughs) 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 And if you take a bath and all the little skin cells go down the drain, is that you going down the drain? You know, we just assume so much, but when you really look closely, what's going down the drain? There's a saying from Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, who says that the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? The whole universe and we as parts of the universe are this constantly changing process. Is it really my body, my skin cells, my fingernails, my hair? It's our thinking that this is my body 
that causes us so much suffering in our lives. It's the root. This doesn't mean that we don't care for our bodies and we all really want to be healthy. But it's the attachment to this body as being mine that's the root of the problem. The greatest teaching for me when my body breaks down is that it forces me to see this again, that I'm not the body. There's a teacher named Sri Nizargadatta who said that I was never born and I'm not going to die. I think about that a lot when I sit, especially. I was never born and I'm not going to die. And he pleads with us not to accuse him of being born. There is this constantly changing process. Whom can it harm? The other perspective of death, I think, which is very helpful to opening to the actual physical loss of our bodies, is seeing on a more microscopic level the arising and passing of each moment. And so when things are a little quiet and still, you might begin to notice that the world of consciousness is a world of incredible change. That each object is constantly changing and that no matter how much we might want to stop it, There's no rest. It's just arising and passing. Each moment is coming and going. Once it comes, it's going to go. And when you're very quiet, you might notice that objects become more and more ghost-like. That even, they don't even, objects don't even last a moment. If you look very closely, they're so transitory. They're like phantoms. They're ghost-like. They dissolve. Within this, again, it's not meant to be a depressing story. What's meant is that anything that is conditioned is not dependable in any kind of lasting refuge. And when one sees this clearly, even in one moment, it makes space in the mind. This seeing makes space in the mind for a happiness to arise that isn't based on sensual objects. There's the possibility for freedom. There's the possibility that we're no longer victims of the pleasure-pain syndrome. That we're no longer tied or bound or imprisoned by objects of consciousness. We're no longer running from pain and pursuing pleasure. I just read today that the root word of free is pri, P-R-I, and this means love. When one lets go of associating happiness 
just with pleasurable feelings, love becomes courage. And perhaps love is only courage. It's seeing through the illusion of pleasure as only happiness. The wages of dying is love. The wages of dying is love. Which brings us to the fourth heavenly messenger, the samana, the renunciate, one who has become peaceful. What does renunciation have to do with opening to loss? What does renunciation have to do with opening to old age or sickness or death? What does renunciation have to do with anything? Why is it a fourth heavenly messenger? To me, this time of year is a wonderful time to do a retreat. It's the season of letting go. The seasons come and go. There's autumn and winter, spring and summer. There's this rhythm to life. There's birth and childhood, adolescence, adulthood, old age, and death. And in this time, in this rhythm that we're all living in right now, within nature, most everything (coughs) outside is slowing down. Everything's getting ready to hibernate or be quiet. It's a time of going deeply inside and resting. It's a time within the retreat that we're allowing our minds to become relaxed and still. It's a time of rest and renewal. And this stillness is healing. The stillness itself is actually healing. And it's from this stillness that renewal comes. It's the renewal of our distorted and dusty perception itself. It's cleansing our perception, how we perceive from moment to moment. And so renunciation makes the makes possible seeing clearer. It's like cleaning a window. What are we doing here? Why did you take birth? What is being a human being all about? Are our lives a search for pleasure for the body and mind's sake? Are we constantly succumbing to what's occurring at our sense doors? What's your motivation for being here? 
What's your motivation for living? Why bother? It's this motivation within our minds that's so important. Why are you paying attention? What's your motivation? Is it ambition? Are you here to learn to be with whatever's happening? Just that. If you can do this, just to be here, to be here, to learn about being, there's such peace and possibility for freedom because the happiness isn't based on pleasure of getting anything. It's being with what is, not what you want to get. And this is love. The wages of dying is love. This is renunciation. It's renouncing, it's renouncing ambition. It's renouncing what you want. It's being with what is. That's love. That's freedom. One time I saw Martin Luther King in a church. It's a film clip. It was a film clip in his early days in Selma, Alabama. And he was in this incredibly run-down, dilapidated church. And he was talking to the poorest of the poor in America very illiterate people. And he told them something that was a knockout. I mean, I just will never forget it. (laughs) He stood up there and he told all these people, we all have the capacity to die. He told those people that you can put your life on the line for freedom, that we all have the capacity to die, no matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are, no matter what race you are, no matter what gender, no matter how old, that we all share that capacity. And there was this tremendous radiance coming out of these people when they heard it. And I think that We all need a growing understanding of what letting go is, what renunciation really is. What are the wages of dying? Martin Luther King was talking about dying to bring about a freedom of spirit. He was talking about freeing these people spiritually. And this renunciation doesn't mean self-denial. It doesn't mean denying yourself anything. It's based on understanding. It's based on an incredible inner transformation within the heart. It means that you're ready to die. 
it means that you're ready to let go of the past, of the future, of the concept of I. And not because of any kind of self-denial, it's because you understand that they're false, because they're not the truth. Are you willing to die meditating? Are you willing to let go of everything? It's really just letting go of the concept of I. And when we do this in any moment, what's really amazing is that we get everything. The more you let go of, the more you get. And so we hold on to the clear sitting. We hold on to the concentration. For what? We hold on to having no physical pain, or we hold on to a chocolate. We hold on to the stuff, and we keep missing (laughs) our life, moment by moment. We can learn to use the four heavenly messengers as teachers. And again, I'm not suggesting that we drown in despair, but really to go through the sadness and the fear and the despair to inspiration. And really what old age, disease, and death are all about in terms of inspiration is to ask yourself what's important. What's really important? Tomorrow. Is tomorrow really important? Is yesterday? Is yesterday so important? Are they worth the price of our spirit? Are they worth the price of our freedom? Again, what are you here for? Do you realize the preciousness of your life, the sacredness of your life? Are you willing to keep giving up your life moment by moment? Krishnamurti says, to die to thought from moment to moment is to be free from the known. It is this death that puts an end to decay. This freedom, it isn't possible in the future. It's not, it's not the next three-month course. It's not based on working anything out. Freedom doesn't depend on time or space. It has nothing to do with how much you've sat. Freedom has nothing to do with how many courses you've done. Freedom only has to do with one moment of letting go. Because that's all we have. You can't let go in the future. You can't let go in the past. We only have these moments. And in one moment, when we truly let go, 
there's freedom, there's peace. And that's when we're truly alive. There's no possibility of being alive in the future or in the past. And in some ways I see that our fear of living and our fear of dying are really the same. It's like we have to face birth and death over and over. When then we finally start to begin to say goodbye to each moment and hello to the next moment, that we really can do that. There used to be a sign in the hall, it was a long time ago, so I'm not sure if anyone here remembers it, but it was this huge calligraphy. And it said, the real yogi has no future. <laughs> and I, I saw it when I first got here, <laughs> you know, very innocent. And I saw that, and it was like, ugh, <laughs> how, <laughs> how dreadful. <laughs> the real yogi has no future. That these guys are serious. <laughs> and now I hear myself saying, now this could be the very last time you sit. Ever. And that this is a reality. And you know, this can be sad, or it cannot be sad, but it's the truth. But it can also be very invigorating. You might be surprised to find out that we have, if we're lucky, (laughs) sounds three more weeks of sitting. And it's very precious. Again, it's not meant to be this heavy, horrible thing. It's really wonderful. We have three more weeks. It's incredible. Each moment is precious when we know that birth and death arises and passes in a moment. Each moment and every moment is total, just as it is. And that's all we really have. That's all we really share, our mortality and these moments. And freedom's only possible in a moment. It's not a hundred years from now, and it's not two minutes from now. It's not going to come from cleaning up your personality. That's a good thing to do, but it's not, that's not it. I'd like to end with a a poem by, forgive my pronunciation, it's a Japanese name, Nanano Sakaki. And it's called Break the Mirror. He's an old poet still alive. In the morning, 
after taking cold shower. What a mistake. I look at the mirror. There, a funny guy, gray hair, white beard, wrinkled skin. What a pity. Poor, dirty, old man. He is not me, absolutely not. Land and life, fishing in the ocean, sleeping in the desert with stars, building a shelter in mountains, farming the ancient way, singing with coyotes, singing against nuclear war. I'll never be tired of life. Now I'm 17 years old, a very charming young man. I sit down quietly in lotus position, meditating, meditating for nothing. Suddenly a voice comes to me, to stay young, to save the world, break the mirror. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.